Well, good morning, and uh, thank you, Jennifer, for leading. It's just wonderful. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, please be in prayer for, for Warner and Gabby and Santi. They are, uh, he's actually going to be down there for two weeks, so he, he'll be gone next week as well. Um, it's part vacation, but uh, certainly part of his uh, preparation as he gets ready to go down there and, and plant a church down there. So uh, please continue to be praying for, for Warner uh, and, and Gabby and Santi and all that God is, is doing and preparing for them as, as uh, they take on this huge, huge um, calling, frankly. And so um, it's, they don't know what's waiting for them. <laughs> None of us do, but it's, so it's definitely something where we are going to God in prayer and asking God to bless uh, his efforts and, and just uh, an incredible, incredible providential story of how all of that came to be. And so it's just an just a awesome, awesome opportunity that we get to witness um, God do some incredible work. And that's really what it is. And so, um, well, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, please uh, find me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you, um, get to know you. Um, this is... This is the time that we gather together, right? Like, we spend all week um, just doing things, don't we? <laughs> like, lots of things. And, uh, um, but this is like this beautiful time where we gather together. Theoretically, we leave stuff at the door, right? All the baggage that we're carrying in, all the, the taskers that we left in last week, and the things that, you know, are awaiting for us uh, starting tomorrow or maybe even this afternoon, and we go, this is time to worship God. Um, Our entire lives are for worshiping God, right? But this time in particular, we gather together as a community of brothers and sisters in Christ to draw our attention to God. And so I hope that this morning that that that's what happens, that that we are able to um, relish in the things that Jennifer just talked about and that the, the band just played and sang about, like these these incredible truths of who God is and what he's secured and done for us. And so, um, so that's, that's my prayer for all of us this morning. Let me, let me start by, uh, by praying. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your son and giving us your Holy Spirit. And help us just to be in awe of you, Father. Help us to be in awe of your plan of redemption, your your rescue plan for us. And Father, we pray that that this morning that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes and our ears and help us to see the world and ourselves the way you see us, um, truthfully and in love. And so we thank you for this opportunity and we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going back and forth, right, through the book of John. I hope you're keeping up. And, and you know, if you, if you need, uh, I've sent it out in the text. I actually, I meant to send it out yesterday. You guys didn't get a text yesterday, did you? <laughs> oh, I remembered and then I forgot and then I remembered again just now. Um, so you can always go to tccjacks.org slash study. And then that's got the, the, like, what we'll be preaching on the stage and then, what you're going through during the week with your small group or personally or whatever. 
Um, and then, you know, that's how we're kind of walking all the way through the, the, the gospel according to John. So, so this week you read a section of scripture, um, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And I, I, um, I have to address it because you probably noticed in your Bibles that there were brackets around it that looked weird, that looked very distinct. Maybe um, depending on the version of your Bible, there's probably a footnote in the bottom that says something about those passages. Um, and it says that they aren't included in the earliest manuscripts. Did you guys notice that this week? Um, and so I, I want to talk to that just a little bit, and then, and then we'll move on. Um, and I kind of have to because it, it kind of uh, it messes with my introduction a little bit here. So um, the earliest manuscripts, in fact, do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. Um, the first actual um, instance of it, the first manuscript evidence that we actually tangibly have with us right now is from like the 9th century. Um, so the old stuff doesn't have it. Um, and so when textual critics and scholars are looking and they're looking at all the manuscript evidence, they're trying to figure out when was this started to be looked at. Um, not a lot of church fathers even talk about it. When they give a commentary early, early on, like we're talking like third, uh, second and third century uh, early church leaders, when they would do their commentary on the Gospel of John, they would go through John 7.52 and then they were at John 8.12. Um, so they like just didn't even mention it. it. It was as if it didn't exist. Some manuscripts um, do include it, and in fact, Jerome's Latin Vulgate that was written in the fourth century is the first uh, instance of it uh, popping up. Um, and then that version of the Bible was the version of the Bible for a thousand years. <laughs> so. It's really hard after something's in there for a thousand years for people to then go back and go, well, maybe that's not, maybe that's not actually scripture, right? Um, the verses and chapters got included in, um, uh, sorry, let me back up real quick. So uh, I'll, I'll do a little academic here. So the Textus Receptus, um, Erasmus wrote in 1517, I think, um, stand by, uh, 1516, <laughs> uh, in 1516, and he basically took Jerome's Latin Vulgate and, and primarily used that. He used some other resources and, and put together um, the Texas Receptus, which is what became the King James Version, effectively. So now you have the King James Version that, that, we, that still exists, right? Um, and so that also had that. Uh, the first English Bible translated King James Version um, into English. And so anyway, so this is how this stays in there. And so scholars start looking at it, and they're like, we don't know, we don't feel super confident, so we're going to include it because we see God's word as an authority in our lives and we want to tread very carefully if we're going to remove anything or add anything, right? The fact that it's in there should lead us to the point that the history of the church has gone, I want to be really careful about what I say is in here and not in here, um, so that's why it's in there. Um, could it have happened? This is the, the woman that was caught in adultery that's brought before Jesus, right? This is the story, and, they, and Jesus says, now, um, you know, he who has no sin cast the first stone. We've heard this probably, just like, it's a very common story. He draws in the sand, right? The old people leave, the young people stay, you know, eventually everybody leaves. Could that have happened? 
John even says at the beginning, there's a lot of things that Jesus did that he didn't write down. So it's not really a question of could this incident have happened? It could have. And in fact, it lines up with things that we would have would say, yeah, maybe Jesus would have said that. But when we look at the inspiration of Scripture, we say, did God intend for that to be prescriptive and descriptive for our lives? Should we then model our lives after that? Is that applicable for us? I don't know. I don't believe so, personally. Here's the thing. You can find the truths that are in that thing everywhere else in Scripture, so it doesn't really change much. The ending of Mark actually is, is a similar chunk. I think it's Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's the same, same type of thing. It's a chunk of Scripture. wasn't in there in the earliest manuscripts brought in. Um, so, how do you, so here's why I say this. Because we need to be very cautious. All truth is God's truth. All truth. doesn't matter who's writing it. Okay? You guys with me on that? Somebody who doesn't know God can write something that is true. So we don't just jettison everything that's not in the Bible, right? We just take it cautiously. And we take it carefully. And we go, let me apply this as the truth is revealed uh, to me in this instance. But is it inspired scripture? That's a very different thing. Does it have an authority in your life? Okay. Now, I would argue that this section of scripture, there's no authoritative thing that's happening, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't say anything necessarily prescriptively for us to go and do differently based on just that one section of scripture, which is awesome. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is very redundant. He continues to be redundant. He continues to speak truths that he wants us to know in different ways, and God has done this throughout Scripture. And so we rarely, rarely, and in fact, I would take great caution if you're like, this one Scripture right here says this, or this word right here says this, and so I'm going to base my entire life on just this one Scripture or verse. God doesn't often communicate that way. It's filled throughout Scripture. There aren't like these little teetering points in Scripture that's like, oh, did you catch that one word? Because if not, you're in for trouble, right? That's not how God operates. Just like us as parents, we communicate to our kids over and over and over again the truths that we want them. We don't say, hey, do you remember three years ago I said that one word? Did you not remember that? Right? This is the love of God. And so I say all that because it seems when you start in John 8, 12, which is where we're going to be picking up this morning, that Jesus is still at the Feast of Booths, the still at the Feast of Tabernacles, where he left, right? That's where we left him last week. He's, he's talking about, they, they bring up the water, right, for the, uh, onto the altar, they pour it on the altar, and Jesus says, I'm the living water, right? Are you thirsty? Come to me, follow me, right? Drink from me. And then what we see in John 8, 12, and you can turn there now, and again, the verses will be on the screen. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so from a very basic perspective, it seems as though that little chunk of scripture fast forwards him the next day, and it kind of just doesn't seem like it really places there well. And so what do we have? We have Jesus at the Feast of Booths, which, by the way, today's the last day. So I don't know if you guys encountered that at all this last week, but 
Um, the, the Jewish people were celebrating, it's called Sukkot, right? And so we talked about this last week. And so for a week, they were celebrating this. Uh, they were celebrating their wandering in the wilderness, right? They were celebrating God's, not that they were, they were, they weren't celebrating their wandering in the wilderness. That was not the good part. The good part was that God provided for them in the midst of this, right? God provided them manna, provided them bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right? God provided them with water. Uh, Jesus says, I am living water. And so this is the celebration of Sukkot. Well, guess what happens on the evenings in Sukkot? There's a lighting of candelabras, okay? So this is why this context matters so much. In fact, what would have happened at night, so they have the water drawing ceremony that I described last week, right? They do this. By the way, I don't think I mentioned it last week. This festival has the most sacrifices. Um, it's a lot. It's repeated, lots and lots of sacrifices of what they, what they did historically. And so um, in the evenings, they did this lighting ceremony, okay? Um, it's called the illumination of the temple. Sorry, I couldn't remember what that was for a second. It's called the illumination of the temple. And they, they would go into this courtyard. It's actually called the courtyard of the women. It's, it's the first courtyard that the Gentiles could not come into. So this was all Jewish people. Basically, the children of God were allowed into this one. And they had these uh, 12 candelabras. They were, they were these massive like uh, funnels that went all the way up, and they went to this basin up top. They were so big that they required ladders to get up to the top. And they would fill these up with 17 gallons of oil per, per thing. And then they would rip their, use their clothes as wicks that would go all the way down this thing. And they would light all of these things at night. And so, they, um, and so it says that, that um, the Mishnah, it's the oral tradition uh, in Judaism, uh, the Mishnah says that uh, every courtyard in Jerusalem was illuminated. Like, it lit up everything. And so it's in the midst of that that Jesus says what we just read. You see how it makes sense that we're all at the same point in time. Jesus is engaging in the midst of this festival. It's like, you know, this is a beautiful festival, but guess what? It was pointing to me. <laughs> Jesus is saying, it's all pointing to me. And Jesus goes, I am the light of the world. You see this light that's pervading everywhere, that's glowing, that everybody, I mean, I mean, Jerusalem's on a hill. Like, you would have seen that. Have you guys ever seen a, a city, especially like if there's like low clouds, and you can tell that like the city is that way? You guys ever done that, right? Like, um, when I used to fly, like, if you're, if you're, like, 200 miles out, like, you know which way to go, not because you can see land, but because you see, like, a glow, a glow of civilization. And so this is what it would have looked like. And so what Jesus says is, that's me. That's me. I am illuminating. I will be the light of the world. I will be the light of life. And so that is where we're picking up this morning. Now, here's what's cool about this, right? We already talked about this, didn't we? Didn't, didn't we talk about Jesus being light in the darkness? When was that? It's at the very beginning of John, right? John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, The true light which, come, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. When John is writing John chapter 1, guess what he's thinking about? 
when Jesus was at the festival, the Feast of Booths, and he said, I am the light of the world, right? So, so in reality, chronologically, chapter 8 comes before chapter 1. You guys, I did that backwards. Chapter 8 comes before chapter 1. You guys get that, right? So John is a human, and he's writing what he's seen and experienced with Jesus. And so he heard Jesus say these things. So that informed chapter 1. Chapter 1 does not inform chapter 8. Is with me? And so this is why this is so beautiful and so cool, because what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. John picks up on that. He's like, light of the world? Well, no, that, that can't be true, because the light of the world is God, clearly throughout Scripture. So either Jesus is blasphemous, or he's God. This is, this is a non-negotiable. I mean, you could, you could maybe work your way around Jesus being the bread of life. You could maybe work your way around Jesus being living water and going like, yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's other sources of water. Maybe there's more bread somewhere else. But light is light. And if we're talking about the light of the world, and Jesus says he's the light of the world, then we got to go back and we got to look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. There's no sun or moon. Get this, right? The sun and moon hadn't been created yet. This is God creating light because God is light. We read this in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. This is the same John writing this, right? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So God created the light. God is light. Well, check out what Revelation 22.5 promises us. This is talking, describing heaven. This is the new heaven and the new earth, right? Like, what, what's it going to look like when all this is done? It says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. That's what it's going to be like. God is going to be there. Light. Pure light. No darkness. No shadows. And so Jesus says, I am that light. This is Jesus. This is him declaring himself equal with God. And so there's no confusion about this. And in fact, we read, if you read ahead in verse 20, they wanted to arrest him. Why? He had committed no violence. He didn't do anything. He was just teaching in the middle of this feast. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. It was blasphemy. Or it was truth. I vote on the side of truth. (laughs) Why we're here, right? And so this is what he declares. He says, I am the light of the world. But then look at what he says next. And, And so what he describes here is this rescue from darkness. That Jesus has rescued us from darkness. He says, 
Um, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay. Our default setting, we are in darkness. Right? He, he doesn't say if you chose to walk in darkness. Right? We, we all know, anecdotally, we know in our lives that we walk in darkness. And this is why it's so, it's so pertinent that when Jesus says, I am the light of life, that he rescues us, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will no longer walk in darkness. And so this is what he's declaring. So we see two things out of this. First, what does he say? Whoever follows me. Whoever. We saw this last week, right? If you thirst, he says, come. He says, whoever of you follows me, you won't walk in darkness. Like, this is a beautiful promise that Jesus says to us, and he describes this, and he says, whoever does this, whoever follows Christ, See, this is the tension in our life, is we know we are rebellious. We know we are sinful. It's not meant to shame us. It's not meant for us to walk out of here, you know, kicking the ground like, I'm just a bad person. Like, that's not the goal here, but it's truth. It's, it's so that we would appreciate and understand who God is and what he's secured for us, what he's done for us. And so we have this tension in our lives because we like the darkness. We do. We like to hide our thoughts, our habits, the actions that we're ashamed of. The darkness hides those things. But here's the problem. Jesus says, I'm, I'm the light. If you, if you follow me, he, he's like, I'll, I'll illuminate your path. And so we have this predicament. All of us have this predicament in our lives. We want the light because we want, we want to know um, what decisions I should make. We want to know what, what God has in store for us. We want joy and peace and contentment. We want these things. And we even understand, frankly, a lot of times we understand that God is the place where that comes from. But, but am I willing to have that light both shine on my path and on me? You see, I'm, I'm good if the light stopped here and just showed me where to step. And it just stayed in front of me. The problem is, that's not how that works. The light illuminates everything. If you're in your bathroom and you're trying to figure out what colors you're wearing, and you're trying to see if what you're wearing matches and so you have to have the right light, well, you're also going to see the wrinkles and the blemishes on your face. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> you, you have to pick. And so the question is, do you turn on the light or not? Do you choose to follow him or not? It's a tension. It's a very real tension. This is the fundamental tension that the world and that all of us wrestle with because we want the, the things that God wants for us. I mean, Generally, everybody does. Like, we want the same things. We're just afraid. 
We're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of what it looks like to be exposed. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I will tell you, I think that I often say this to, to the pastors, especially as we're going through like the, the eldership process. Rarely am I talking about like, rarely does somebody come up to me and say, I've got this deep theological issue about whatever. Like that, that like rarely happens. Usually it's, what do you think I should do? Frankly, and that's the big enigma for all of us. What does tomorrow hold? What, what's the next job? What's the move? What's the decision? What's the thing? Like, what, what should I do? And it's this very intangible thing. But what God promises us is that he would be a light to our path, that he would show us. This doesn't mean that you're going to have some, some profound, like, vision of exactly what your life is going to be. But he's going to give you the wisdom and discernment to know which way you should be going. Am I, am I walking in a direction of faithfulness? Or am I walking in my own direction? In, my, in the direction of rebellion and sin and just going, I'm going to do it my own way. And Jesus promises that he would be, what? The light of life. Like, like this is the path to life. This is it. It's right here. He's, I, I, I'm going to light it up. Right? Like a runway. It's got like, sorry, my, my mind is obviously in one direction, right? But like, you got like these lights and it's like very clear. Like sequenced flashers as you, you know, like, I don't know if you guys have seen those things, right? It's, a, it's like, it's like, go this way. Like, no. Like, what are you doing? But we don't want to be exposed. And so we wrestle with this. We grapple with this. And look at, and this is what is so beautiful. In fact, if we go back to John chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and this is after uh, he had engaged with the woman at the well, right? And they come up, and they're like, aren't you hungry? And he's like, no, I got food somewhere else, right? He's like, I got food that you don't even know about. And then he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's like, let me illuminate the path for you. Let me show you. Look, look up. Look up. Open your eyes. Get your chin up. Look out ahead of you. Because stop trying to feed your stomach and start pursuing God's kingdom. He's like, look what's before you. You know, I, I, I did a bit of research on this. And I thought it was fascinating. Extremely convicting for me. 42%. This is totally out of place in my sermon, but I, I'm going to talk about it now. 42% of the world has never heard of Jesus. You guys know that? Unreached. Isn't that crazy? My like, that's funny because everybody I run into does. 42%. You know that 25% of the world has clearly rejected Jesus. Without doubt. Has, has heard the gospel, knows who Jesus is, and went, not for me. And so what, what do we do with that? How do we apply this into our lives? It's, it's, it's not that they don't want to, to, to land. It's not that they don't want their path illuminated. They just don't want the illumination on them. They don't want to have to say, yeah, I'm jacked up and i got no help. I've, I've got no plan for myself. I need Christ. 
I need God to do something on my behalf. That's humility. That's, that's a real genuine humility of going like, man, I, I got nothing. And you know, even the 42% of people that don't know Christ, I believe that there's many of them who will believe. I believe that there's many of them who are like, I don't know what the plan is, but I know I'm jacked up, and I know that the God that created me needs to do something about it to save me. I think that's like a little, little inkling of faith, that when you put a face to it and you put the gospel to it, it's like, yes, that's it. It's a little bit of a tangent. But you see the common problem, the common thread is that we have this tension in our lives and God goes God goes do you understand that everybody wants this the question is is are you willing for the light to expose you because that's the rescue I mean it just doesn't make any sense to us I mean like when we really think about it like here you are in this like dark dark cave there's no light at all and then you you see a light in the distance like what would you do to go towards the light. I mean, it's a, it's a common expression, right? Like, we, we say it all the time. Like, but what, what the problem is is that we like the darkness so much. You go, well, the pro- if, I sh- if I go to that light, then everybody's going to know I was in the cave. You know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and you know who gets the glory? God does. That's the beautiful part. But if we want the glory, I'm not in the cave, not in the cave. And here we go, groping around trying to find our way in life. And we go, I don't know which way to go. And I'm just grabbing onto anything that seems to satisfy, that seems to give me some temporary happiness. And we go, I'm just going to grab onto this thing because it seems good. And then it falls away and it's all in the dark and you have no idea what's going on. And you suffer and you're going through life and you're like, this is crazy. Life is chaotic. And Jesus goes, I am the light of life. I'll illuminate your path. Just come. So what's the response? So this is what Jesus declares, right? Look at what the response is. It says in verse 13, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They quote. That's a quote of Jesus. You go back, I think it's chapter 5, verse 31. They use Jesus' words against him. I'll talk to that here in a second. For I know where I, uh, sorry, Jesus answered them, if I, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. It all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? This is, this is why I'm saying, like, God, God does not throw out one truth and then just move on. Like, this is, Jesus is giving every opportunity. He, his political advisor would not recommend that he says the same thing over and over again because he's going to get caught, right? Like, this is, this is how we operate now as humans, right? You, you minimize your words because you might contradict yourself. If you're not speaking the truth, but Jesus is, right? Verse 18, um, oh, sorry, uh, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? 
Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. That's a very sad, sad paragraph. Because if you look at it, the Pharisees, their response is not, it's not an honest response. It's not a humble response. It's a, let me catch you in your words, Jesus. You said just the other day that if you bear witness about yourself, then your testimony isn't true. But now you are bearing witness about yourself, but you're saying your testimony is true. You, right? So they take, it, they take it out of context entirely, which is very easy for us to read it in the context and go, well, okay, that's not what he was saying. I mean, he even, and then, and then he says, I judge no one. Oh, Jesus says he judges no one. But earlier it says that God gave him judgment, right? So it's like, well, which one is it? You see, they're trying to catch him in this. Here's the, John Piper actually does this amazing part of this where he's like, it's so absolutely ridiculous that somebody is sitting here going, I'm going to save you eternally. I'm going I'm to rescue you from all of this. Here, have your life illuminated. And then you go, nah, nah, I don't trust you. I don't, I don't, I don't believe what you're saying is true. No, you, you misspoke there. He's like, what? I'm, I'm trying to help you. And then what do they, and then what do, they do? They go on and they, they talk about the law, and then at the end, they, they really kind of jab the knife, and they go, where's your father? You see, from their perspective, they were talking about Joseph, who was dead. Right? And so they're like, dude, you're, you don't even have a father. Who are you? You came from Galilee? You see how, like, like they're, it's like, what is that characteristic? Why? Why is that the response of the 25% of people who've rejected Christ? Why is that the response? What, where you're just looking for something to just cut them off at the knees and go, this, this can't be right. This can't be, why? This is, this is agonizing to me because I don't know the answer. But we see that clearly, that's one of the responses. Now there's another response. So 42% don't know Christ, 25% reject him, 33% call themselves Christians. But I would argue a fraction of that follow Jesus. We just saying, for I've decided to follow Jesus, like follow Jesus. You guys get this, right? He's not saying, if you believe in me here, right? What did we preach, la did we preach last week? Thirst, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, right? Like, you gotta, you gotta move these things. You gotta go. You gotta move. It's not just this intellectual belief of like, yeah, I think Jesus was, was somebody important. That's nothing. That's not what he says. He doesn't promise that. An illuminated path is meaningless if you have no path. If you're not going somewhere, what are you doing? And so this is what he says. He's like, follow for whoever would follow me. 
And so of the 33% of people that claim to be Christians, this is the challenge for us in our context largely, right? All of your friends that claim to be Christians, everybody that fills out every survey is like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, just because, you know, aren't, aren't all Americans Christians? I don't know. My parents were Christian. Doesn't that make me a Christian? My grandparents were Christians. I go to church every once in a while. I mean, if I were to go to a place, I would go to a Christian church. So that makes me a Christian. It's not what he promises. He promises life to those who would follow him. What does it look like to follow Christ? I once read this book. Um, I think it was called Point Man um, by Steve Farrar. I think it was in that book. And, and he... And he describes what following Christ looks like. And, and um, this is something that, like, I, I think about. It probably comes and goes every five years or so that I think about this. But, um, and I just thought about it now as, we're, as I'm talking. But, like, following Christ is, like, when you walk into a room, like, Jesus goes in first. <laughs> and then you follow him. that look like how would that change how would that change our interactions how would that change how we respond because we'd be sitting here and we'd watch jesus engage the crowd or engage the the person or engage the meeting or engage the his work environment or his family or whatever right like what, what would jesus do as he walks in and then you're walking in behind him do the same that's what following christ looks like And then in verse 21, we see the judgment. It says, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. If you have a Bible open, I'd underline that right there. Die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews believed that it was a different uh, eternal place if uh, suicide was, was present. It's not biblical, but. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times. Jesus is pretty clear about the consequences of this, isn't he? What's going to happen? You're going to die in your sins. We know we're all going to die, right? Like he, He's talking about just your, your physical death here. We, we are all going to die. The question is, is what, what then happens? And, and, and how do we die? Do we die in our sins? Or do we die, what's the opposite? Out of our sins? Without sin? Well, I got a lot of work to do if I got to get to the point where I don't have any sin by the time I die. That's not the point, right? Turn over to Second um, Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, this is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. We don't, we don't earn our way to heaven. This is, this is the difference. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Because everybody else is like, I don't know. Everybody understands that they have sins. Everybody understands that they're rebellious. Everybody understands that they have part of them that they don't like and part of them that they do like. And that there's a battle and a tension in their life. Everybody understands this. That, that, isn't, that, that's, that has some semblance of understanding, right? And so what he says here is, what's your plan to get rid of your sins? What's your plan? There's an illuminated path. This one gets rid of your sins. Every other path, you get rid of your sins. How do you get rid of a sin that you've already committed? How do you atone for that? What do you do? Right? If I, if I talk bad to Melissa or, or my kids or something like that, like, I say I'm sorry. <laughs> doesn't change anything. Yeah, well, you still did it. But, what, but somehow the world has convinced themselves that, like, the words I'm sorry, like, somehow, like, clean the slate. No, you could do significant damage, right? We've seen this. We've experienced this. There can be significant damage in the past caused by sin. So what do you do with it? What about forward? Like, you, you, got a, you got a good game plan for righteousness? You got a good game plan so that, that God, our, our holy creator God, is going to look at you and go, you're pretty clean. Actually, you know what? You're perfectly clean. Is that what, is that what you think God's going to do in the future? I'd love to talk to you. There's no way. And we know this. And so this is what he says. God made Jesus to be sin. He took on our sins on the cross so that we would then have no sin. And so Jesus says, you're going to die in your sins. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. I'm just telling you. He says it over and over and over again. It's not a threat. He's just saying, what's your, what's your plan? There's a promise. In verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. You've got to imagine Jesus is a bit exasperated at this point, right? He's like, what, more, what other metaphor do you want me to give? By the way, this is, he's at two of seven I am statements throughout the gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. We're only on two. We got five more to go. He's like, I've been telling you this. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare, declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. <laughs> How is that possible? 
how is verse 27 possible? I mean, we're just reading the account of it. They were there. They would have seen the candelabras. They would have seen the illumination. They would have seen the water. They would have seen everything. They would have seen Jesus get up on stage and said these things. They would have seen the Pharisees try to kill him, try to arrest him. They would have seen all of it. And they're like, oh, you're talking about God. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus' truths are pretty consistent. And when he says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. He's talking about being crucified. He's like, when, when you crucify me, now, now here's the funny thing, right? He's not saying, when you crucify me, you're going to believe in me. He doesn't say that. When I get crucified, you're going to know that I am he. What was on the top of Jesus, of the cross? Exactly who he was. The Son of God. Savior of the world. He's like, you're going to know. You're going to understand then. Don't know if you're going to believe or not, but you're going to understand. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. That's the promise. When we read these words, when we read what Jesus says, it hurts. It's searing pain. It's fear. It's, I don't know if I want that light in my life. I don't know if I want to be exposed. But the light illuminates the path to righteousness. So that we wouldn't die in our sins. So what are we going to decide? What are we going to do? Humility. I mean, that, that's really it. Stop trying to hide ourselves. Stop trying to pretend like we're cleaned up. Stop trying to pretend like we're good people. Stop trying to pretend these things and go, listen, I'm jacked up. But you know what? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for me and gave me his righteousness. Not that I'm a good person now. I try to be. I try to pursue God's kingdom. And that's the difference. You know, we use this term holy all the time, and I, I, I take every opportunity I can to distinguish what that is. Holiness is not, you know, uh, Bible-thumping, you know, never sin. It's, it's being set apart. It's that you're being set apart because you're following the path, because you're following Christ. You're set apart. You're distinct. Like, you know what's on this path? Building God's kingdom. You know what's on this path? Looking up and seeing that the fields are ripe for harvest, that 42% of this world doesn't know Christ. Here we are. Just going through our weeks. Just doing our things. I mean, it's not a matter of guilt. It's just a matter of like, what's our purpose? Because frankly, even inside of the 33% of people that we know, they go like, yeah, I have a church. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, you know, I, I, watch, I watch this pastor every once in a while. Are you following Christ? Do you know what the peace, joy, and contentment that God has for you? Do you know what it looks like to get rid of these sins in your life? 
to reject that darkness, to say, I don't want it. I want it all exposed. I want to walk into the light and the weight off of your shoulders and your ability and the opportunity to know that God loves you and that everything that is every step along that path is for your good and for his glory. It's a beautiful place to be. So what's your decision? What will you decide? I hope my prayer is that we don't reject him, but that we would just accept the illumination of our life and just say, I humbly come before you, God. I want to follow you because I trust you. Let me pray. God, we... Uh,